So I'd like to draw your attention then to Matthew 12. We're going to look at three portions. We're going to look at a lot of Scripture this morning. But we're going to start with three portions of Scripture that have something in, in common. Uh, so Matthew 12, verse 38. I get uh, accused a lot of times of not giving the verse numbers. So Matthew 12, verse 38. And we're going to read Matthew 12, 38 through 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, Something greater than Solomon is here. Turn over a few chapters with me to Matthew 16, 1 through 4. Matthew 16, 1 through 4. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the sign of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Turn now to Luke chapter 11. We're going to have the parallel passage here to Matthew 12. Luke chapter 11, 29 through 32. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold... Something greater than Jonah is here. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to come before you with praise in our hearts, adoration, Lord, to worship you. Lord, we pray that our worship would be acceptable to you this morning. Lord, help us to worship in spirit and truth. Lord, may anything that is said here this morning that is, is contrary to your your truth or your will be forgotten. And may we hear the words that come from your, your scripture, those words that have been inspired, uh, that are inerrant, that are true, 
yesterday, today, and forever, Lord. Uh, open our minds, open our ears, open our eyes this morning, open our hearts that we may receive your word. And Lord, help us see Christ here this morning. In your name we pray, amen. How many times do we find ourselves or others when we're talking to them say something to the effect of, if I could only see some miracle, if I could only see some sign? Uh, we can look into our own hearts and we, we see that this is often true in some way, even in our lives now as Christians. We, if he would just show me some sign, if he would just somehow prove to me what it is that I should do or what it is that I should see here. We're always looking for signs, and there in Matthew 16, the passage that we just read, Jesus even mentions the signs of the weather and how that we can observe repeatable patterns in nature. And we observe these things, we take them in, and we draw inferences from these things. And this in and of itself is not bad. This is one of those things that we have as proof, in one sense, as evidence to the fact that we have a creator. We are not born into chaos. We are not born into a world that is brought into existence by accident or some cosmic accident or some... Um, unknown force. We have a creator. We have a God who created the world and in that has given purpose to what takes place. Even in the weather, we can see this. In, in terms of the seasons, we can see this. These patterns, these things that, that prove to us that we have a creator in which will one day leave all men without excuse as they stand before God in judgment. But the sign that was requested that we, we read about here this morning from the Pharisees was something more than just the weather. It was something that was more than just these predictable occurrences that, that we see and we can, we can observe in nature. And we find that even us as modern men so scientifically advanced so increased in knowledge that we think we are over and above those who existed back in the time of Christ, uh, we're no different in our desire to have proof. Uh, even our desire to see a sign that goes beyond these natural occurrences. We even find ourselves sometimes bargaining with God to make some special manifestation, do we not? Give me some sign that this is what I should do. Give me some sign that this is what I should believe. Well, we have uh, in, in Luke, if you turn to Luke chapter 16, we have an occurrence of something that I think it would all do us well to take to heart. Luke chapter 16, verse 19 
We're told that there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was a, laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores, but the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, and the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, there's this great chasm. This great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to there may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, listen now, then I beg you, Father, to send to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone were to just pass to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Even if they were to receive this sign, if they were to see this sign of one being raised from the dead in their unrepentant hearts, they would not recognize it for what it was. If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. We will see this from our text this morning that the Jewish leaders were no different than this. They were seeking a sign of the phenomenal, the, the ethereal or the supernatural. But just like Father Abraham told the rich man here, suffering in Hades, even that would be insufficient in, its, in and of itself to bring about repentance because they weren't really, truly wanting to see. If we turn back to the Matthew, Matthew 12 passage, we're going to kind of camp here for just a minute. We find in, in all three of the texts that we read, Matthew 12, 16, and Luke 11, that there's a, a somewhat obscure reference to a prophet. And we know the story of this prophet very well, most of us do. We, we learn this from the time we're, we're little kids. Jonah got swallowed by a whale, right? That's, that's, what, that's what we're taught as kids. Um, but he's only named in three places in the New Testament, this prophet Jonah. That's all. We have a book of prophecy, a minor prophecy, devoted to his, his historical account. And then we have three instances 
in Scripture that we've read here this morning, and those are the only places that he's mentioned in the New Testament. While a whole book, albeit short four chapters, are devoted to him and his prophecy, these three places are the only place that he's mentioned. And we're going to take a look at this this morning and try and glean what we can from the Scriptures uh, in reference to this, what is referred to as the sign of the prophet Jonah. In Matthew 12, the context of where, where our first passage starts, we're given an account of Christ and his disciples, and they're going through the grain fields, and his disciples are hungry. And it's the Sabbath day. And they are taking and they are pulling this grain off of the, the growth and eating it. And the Pharisees observe this, and they question Christ about it in verses 1 through 4 of Matthew 12. And Jesus teaches them here, if they would only have ears to hear, he teaches them what is the heart of the law. He tells them about how David, when he was hungry, went to the priest and took the, the bread of presence and shared it with his men because they were hungry and they needed to eat. He declares himself, Christ declares himself to be Lord of the Sabbath. And then he enters these, the synagogue of these very same Pharisees. And he encounters a man with a withered hand. And this is still on that same Sabbath day. He encounters this man with a withered hand. And they immediately, seeking to trap Jesus, they, they start asking him questions about this. Is it lawful to heal this man on the Sabbath? He again teaches the heart of the law, that it's to do good, to do justly, to help those in need, to minister to the afflicted, and he heals this man with a withered hand. And his hand is made whole. And it's at this point, in verse 14 of chapter 12, we are told, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. They weren't just seeking to undermine him. They were seeking to destroy Christ. To destroy his message, to destroy him, to, in effect, kill Christ Jesus. And they, and they immediately, then it, Christ is, is presented in this scripture in verse 22, that there's this demon-possessed man that was blind and mute that was brought to him. So he leaves the, the company of these Pharisees, and he goes out from them. He withdraws from him, and all of these people who had seen and experienced what Christ was doing followed him. And they bring to him this man that is, is demon-possessed. He's blind and he's mute, and he heals him. And the Pharisees hear about this, and what do they say? He does this by the power of Beelzebub. Beelzebub is, is this, this, uh, this lord of the demons, so to speak. By the power of the devil, by the power of Satan, they're saying that the Pharisees are saying that Christ healed this man. And Jesus, kind of as it were, gives them this this scathing but warranted accusation that, that they're speaking blasphemy. And, and he talks then about 
this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, this unpardonable sin that is the rejection of who Christ is and the continued rejection of who Christ is throughout the life that leads to no ability to be saved. That person will not ever repent. And he's saying that they will be guilty of this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and will not be forgiven. This is an unrepentant, like I said, lifelong refusal to see Christ as Lord. Then we find where we read this morning in verse 38 of chapter 12. Some of those scribes and Pharisees come to him after, blows my mind, after accusing him of doing this by the power of Satan, they come to him and they ask for what? They ask for a sign. They had seen numerous signs, okay? In Matthew alone, and I'm not going to take the time to look at these, but you can go back through your Bible from the start of Matthew until we get to this passage in Matthew 12. We have instance after instance of Christ performing miracles. If you look at the the pericope headings, that's those headings that show up in your Bible that kind of divide the portions of Scripture by the translators as it kind of giving a, a heading or a brief overview of what that passage has. You will find these in a lot of these pericope headings. In chapter 8, we have the cleansing of a leper. And we have the centurion servant that is healed without Christ even being there. He just tells the centurion that he'll be healed and he's healed. We have Peter's mother-in-law who was healed. We have the calming of a storm. We have two demon-possessed men coming out of the area of the tombs and Christ casts out these demons. We have a paralytic man that Christ comes into contact with in chapter 9. And this was, I, I have to turn here because I, th- this passage of, of Scripture right here in, in chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, this paralytic man that, man that he, is, he is presented with, Jesus does something amazing. He, he says, take heart to this man, your sins are forgiven. Now, this was done with the Pharisees and the scribes in attendance. And and they see that for what it is. No one has the power to forgive sins except for God. So what does Jesus do? He says, they're saying that he's blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their evil thoughts, says to them, Why do you think evil in your hearts for which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up and walk but that you may know here's a sign he's saying but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins then he said to the paralytic rise pick up your bed and go home. And what does the paralytic do? He immediately rises up, he rolls up his bed, and he walks away. Here's a sign of who he is. Nobody but God 
has the authority to forgive sins. He's saying, I'm him. I'm him. Here's a sign for you. Then we have the, in chapter 9, continuing on, we have this woman who had this issue of blood, this flow of blood for 12 years. After the leader, Jairus, comes to him and says, hey, my, my little girl's dying. In between that and him healing Jairus' daughter, we have this woman who just touches the garment of Christ. And immediately that, blow, that flow of blood is dried up and she's made whole again. And then we have Jairus' daughter who's brought to life. They're, they are laughing at Christ and mocking him for saying that the little girl is just asleep. But yet what happened? It's as easy as waking someone up for, from sleep for Christ to rise a dead soul back into to living. Just like he did with Lazarus. Then we have the healing of two blind men. We have another mute demon-possessed man that's healed. There are ten clearly defined public miracles from the time Matthew begins to record this miraculous ministry of Christ until we find this passage that we've just dealt with in Matthew 12. They were asking for a sign after 10 that we just have recorded. What is it that we're told elsewhere in Scripture? If, if, the, if the books were written to contain all that he ever did, the world wouldn't be enough to hold them all. But we have for us recorded 10 here prior to this. They weren't really asking for a miracle. They were seeking a sign in the sky. Luke 11 alludes to this, a sign from heaven, something of astronomical proportions. They believed that demons, these Pharisees, believed that demons could perform some sort of of miracles of of healing um, that they had had witnessed, but but they're saying that that's what Christ is doing, so they're they're seeking something else, something else. And, And Jesus even at one point, says that this, this doesn't make any sense. Why would I perform miracles by the power of Satan to kick out one who is of Satan? And then he talks about the strong man binding the one of the house. And we won't go into that for time's sake, but uh, I, I would encourage you to look at that passage sometime in, in more detail. But Christ, knowing their true intention, what the purpose in them asking and seeking for a sign was, that it was to destroy him and to catch him in something. And he knew that no matter what sign he was to give them, they still would reject him. It wouldn't have mattered if the stars, if he would have performed a sign where the stars realigned themselves. One commentator speaks of it as if what they were searching for was something like Orion finally catching the bear in the constellations. But it wouldn't have mattered. This is not what they were truly seeking. Then we come to verse 39 in our text.
In verse 39, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. An evil and adulterous generation. They are wicked. And how preposterous for them to come and seek a sign from one that they will refuse to believe in. Even charging him in, to be in league with the devil for the miracles that he's performing. They're so blinded in sin that they don't see that Jesus himself was the most glorious of all signs sent from heaven itself. The Word, the second person of the triune Godhead became man and dwelt among them, born in the likeness of human flesh, born to an Israelite woman, adopted by Joseph, born of the lineage of Abraham, who is the father of the faithful, and born of the line of David. So Jesus tells them, you're not going to have any sign except the sign of Jonah. Now there are some slight differences that we saw in, in this sign being portrayed in, in Matthew and Luke. And we'll look at these in a little bit. But let's look first of all at him calling them an adulterous generation. In Jeremiah 31, you don't have to turn there, but Jeremiah 31, 31 through 32, the scripture records uh, for us by the prophet Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers. When I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Do you see why Jesus is referring, them at, referring to them as an adulterous generation? Jesus is speaking of the nation of Israel, as recorded here for us in our text, as though they had been taken, as, as though he had taken them in marriage. And they broke their vows of that covenant marriage. They're adulterous. They've turned their back on their God. Ezekiel 16, 32 through 35. And I know this has some, some language that we may consider a little, a little rough, but it's scripture. And it, it comes to the heart of what Christ is saying about this generation. Ezekiel 16, 32-35 said, Adulterous wife, who receives strangers instead of her husband? Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different than the other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. Therefore, O oh prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. The heading in my Bible for this Ezekiel 16 passage even titles it, The Lord's Faithless Bride. 
They were not brought into their adultery as one who is bought as a prostitute. No one solicited them, but they themselves went to play the harlot away from their husband, the Lord. They are an adulterous generation. This is the way Jesus, who sees the hearts of men, who sees into their very souls, speaks of those who would seek after a sign in this text. They have no desire in their heart for the love of God, for the love of the God-man, no desire to be made a bride to the groom who would purchase them and make payment with his own precious blood. They had no desire for this. They were adulterous. We now look at the last part of verse 39 and verse 40. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. I don't know that anyone, and I haven't researched this, but I don't know that anyone prior to Jesus claiming this here in Matthew 12 and in Luke ever recognized a connection with Jonah to be a messianic prophecy. However, as the Word who became flesh, as the living Word, the Word which was with God in the beginning, and the one who is co-equal with the Holy Spirit who inspired the Word of God that are written for us, we may have every confidence in the world and in heaven that Christ himself knows how to interpret Scripture, whether we saw it or not. So turn with me to the book of Jonah real quick. And this is always, especially in this new Bible that doesn't have all the notes and stuff in it, it's always hard for me to get to in here. We know the story, but I want to read part of this here this morning to make sure that we... we we focus in on what we need to focus in on. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. Nineveh, that great city. It was an Assyrian city located on the eastern bank of the Tigris River. It was downstream from the Kurdish mountains in modern-day Mosul, Iraq, is the area where this, this city was. At this time when Jonah is told to go to Nineveh, it's a great metropolis, maybe the greatest metropolis of the Assyrian Empire. And it was right in the middle of two major, a north-south and an east-west trade route. So it's a pretty important city. But nearly every mention of this city in Scripture that we have throughout the historical books is that it was great in its wickedness. Refers to it as being evil. And this is clearly evident as we continue to read, by the way, that, uh, that Jonah seeks to, to... He doesn't want to go there. He just doesn't want to. So he's told to go, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the Lord says, for evil, their evil has come up before me. 
But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. And he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, for time's sake, we know what happens here. He gets on this boat and a great storm arises, right? And this great storm arises and the men come to him and say, you know, who are you? What, what is this? Why, why is this happening? Who are you? He tells him that he's a Hebrew and he fears the Lord the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And these men became exceedingly or extremely afraid. And they, they asked him, what have you done? What have you done? Because he had told them that he was fleeing the command of the Lord to go to Nineveh. And he tells them to throw him overboard. And they row real hard. They're not wanting to throw him overboard. They row exceedingly hard, but the storm just picks up until they do as Jonah requested, and they throw him over into the sea. And the Lord appoints, the Lord prepares this great fish. Not a whale, a great fish. Don't know that it's ever been in existence before, but the Lord prepares it, and it swallows Jonah from the belly of the sea, from the death of the sea. And he is in this great fish for three days and three nights. And then in verse 17, he appoints this fish to swallow up Jonah, and he was in the belly of this fish for three days and three nights. Now, why did Jonah not want to go there? Well, he knew of their wickedness and their paganism, and he had no desire to do as the Lord said, which was to go with a message of repentance. Tell them that the wrath of God is revealed against them. He had no desire to do this. But the Lord in his sovereignty will accomplish his purpose. And he gets Jonah to Nineveh. And so we have this three days and the three nights that Matthew in his gospel speaks of. And he says that for as Jonah, in Matthew 12, verse 40, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of that great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then the resurrection from the earth after that time span. Matthew seems to be telling us that this three days and three nights in and of itself is a sign, and it is the sign of the prophet Jonah that the Lord speaks of. Jesus, as is often the case in the case of the apostles afterwards, points back to these historical accounts and, and, and these prophetic accounts in the Old Testament, and he points to them as a type and a shadow of that which would be the reality. Jonah, in the belly of the great fish, was but a type or a shadow or a picture of that which was the truth that was to occur. The truth is, in reality, 
of not only Christ's death on the cross, but his burial in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights preceding his resurrection. Now, this, is, this, this three days and three nights, we have to understand that this is an idiom that is in Jewish tradition. So this is after the custom of the Jews to speak of any part of a day and a night as being a whole day and a whole night. And this, this three days and three nights signifies a whole three days spoken of by way of this expression or this idiom that was common in the Jewish culture. There's a lot of people that have grappled with this because of the account of Christ dying on Friday and rising on Sunday. But we do this all the time with Scripture. It's unfortunate because we don't understand the culture of the Jews. We don't understand their language. We don't understand their expressions. We don't understand the, the world in which they lived at that time. So we try and come up with all of these crazy explanations for things when it's just a common expression among the Jews that three days and three nights is three days. We can be confident in the Holy Spirit inspiring the truth for us in his word. We also notice that Jesus doesn't speak of this as a fable. He speaks of this as a historical account. It's not some grand story that he's alluding to, but it's a historical account of Jonah and his dealings with Nineveh. There, there are four ways that people look at this, this, uh, this prophecy of Jonah. They'll say it's an allegory, which is a method of teaching uh, truths or principles by means of a symbolic nature. Uh, there is a Jewish practice that was common among the first century that was called a midrash, which is a type of commentary on Scripture uh, that was carried out by Jewish scholars during the first basic thousand years of this Christian era, so the first century uh, A.D. Or they'll say that it's an interpretation as a parable, as, as a, a kind of fictional thing that's being told to, to represent a truth. And that's perhaps the most common way, the most common error, I should say, in dealing with the prophecy of Jonah. The fourth is that it's a literal historical account, which I, I don't think there's any question but what that's true based on the fact that Jesus speaks of it here as historical. And he is the only one that has the right and the authority to declare Scripture to be what it is. It's written by him. It's about him. And we believe what he tells us and how he interprets it. So there is something to this three days and three nights. This is a huge sign. All of these Pharisees, these scribes, these Sadducees would have known, would have seen... Christ being buried, and three days later rising again. How do we know that? They even made up a story about his followers stealing the body of Christ from the tomb to cover what they knew to be true. But there's something more here. Luke's account goes just a little bit further, I think, than just the, the sign of this burial and resurrection. 
he completely skips over. If you look to Luke, Luke chapter 11, in verse 29, he speaks of this adulterous evil generation, seeks for a sign, but no sign is given except the sign of Jonah. And he skips completely the fact that it's about the three days and the three nights as Jonah was in the belly of the fish that Christ would be in the heart of the earth. He says, for as Jonah became the sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man to this generation. So it's not just what happened to Jonah, it's Jonah himself became a sign. And so the Son of Man himself becomes the sign. He signifies that something's even deeper here than just this death and resurrection to be taken as a sign. He is saying the entire life that God-man himself is a sign to the world, to the Jews and to Gentiles alike. Here is your sign of divinity. Here is your sign of God who became flesh. Here we behold the glory of God. Here we see the radiance of his glory, the expressed or the exact imprint of his nature. Here we see the sign that he is the one who upholds the world by the word of his power. He's the one that the, of the father said, let all God's angels worship him. That his throne is forever and ever. That he laid the foundations of the earth the one in whom God says, I am well pleased. We are to hear him. We are to see him. What did the father speak during the transfiguration experience? This is my beloved son, hear him. Do you see him? Here is your sign. Feel kind of like that comedian from the South. Here's your sign. It was popular a few, well, Here's it. Here, here's your sign. Here it is. See him. See his whole life, his whole being, every interaction that he had, every statement he made proclaims with boldness, he's the Messiah. He's the promised one. He's the Savior. He's the anointed one. Jonah 3, 4 tells us, as Jonah finally gets to Nineveh, after being spit out of that great fish, he calls out to them, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. What are we told that the people of Nineveh did? They were a pagan, idolatrous, godless nation. And Jonah goes to them. This is the sign of Jonah. This is more than just the three days and the three nights. He goes to them and he tells them, 40 days and the wrath of God's coming. And what do they do? They repent in dust and ashes. Jonah became a sign to call Nineveh to repentance for judgment was coming.
But we, as the Pharisees had right here, have Christ, the truest sign, right in front of us. Not only calling us to repentance, but showing us the way to salvation. Show us hope, shows us truth, shows us the way. He is so much greater than the sign of Jonah. Jonah was a a minor prophet, a sinful man. He was reluctant to go to Nineveh and to speak for God to those who he hated and those who he feared. He had no miracle of his own hand by which to testify to the truth of what he was speaking, which was a a message of doom, a message of judgment. In chapter 4, even towards the end of Jonah, we see that Jonah became angry. God prepared this plant to give him shade and then prepared a, a, a worm to eat this plant, and it made Jonah angry because God God destroyed this plant that was giving him shade. When Jonah had no ownership of that plant, he didn't create it. He had more compassion, more pity for the plant than he did for the people of Nineveh. Oh, but Jesus... He's greater than all the prophets. The whole of Scripture speaks of Him, not just one small book of prophecy and three obscure references to Him in the New Testament. He was prophesied to be a sign. Dad read earlier in our Scripture reading from Luke 2, when Simeon saw Him, I can die now. I can depart from this world. I've seen Him. And he says he's going to be a sign. He's going to be a sign. He has no sin. Jonah went to Nineveh, a sinful man. Christ came to us without sin. And we find even at 12 years old, when his family had gone to Jerusalem for one of the feasts, and they left they discovered that he was missing. And they spend three days trying to find him in Jerusalem. And where do they find him? They find him in the temple, and he is asking questions and answering those who were teaching in the temple. And they were astonished. They were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Why are you looking for me? He wasn't reluctant to be about his father's business. Jonah fled from going to Nineveh. Christ was about his father's business. When his parents asked him, what what are you doing? Why are you looking for me? Don't you know? I must be in my father's house. I must be about my father's business. Jesus went willingly to the death of the cross on behalf of his people. He didn't flee from it. He didn't go the opposite direction as Jonah went to Tarshish. 
He went to the cross on behalf of His people, willingly bearing their sin and enduring the wrath of God the Father. Not for His own sin, but for His people's sin. Full of pity for sinners. Full of love for those sinners the Father gave Him and told Him to go and save. May none of us here be guilty of that unpardonable sin that Christ earlier speaks of in our Matthew passage. Of rejecting Christ. Here is your sign. Go and see Him. The true heavenly sign in every miracle recorded for us. Go and see Him as the angels attend His birth. See Him in the temple astonishing those teachers with His answers, with His questions. See Him doing everything that was prophesied in Scripture that the Messiah was to do. See Him fulfill every jot and tittle of the law. Go with John and Mary to that hill called Golgotha. See him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted, pierced for our transgressions, hung on a cross as he dies on that cursed tree. Then go with Nicodemus and with Joseph as they bring him down off the cross and put him in a borrowed tomb for three days and three nights. Go with Mary to the garden tomb and find the stone rolled away. Find it empty. Run with Peter and John. See if you can outrun Peter the way that John did. And don't be so timid as John that he won't enter the tomb and Peter busts in before him. And they find his, his linens, his grave clothes, laying there on the ground with no body. Because after three days, he rose again. See Jesus appear to Mary when she's weeping, not knowing what they've done with their Lord's body. And hear him call her by name and her see the resurrected Christ in all his glory. Go with Thomas when he sees the Lord finally resurrected. And see Thomas be shown his pierced hands in his side. And then go on the road to Emmaus with those two men when Jesus took and from Moses and the prophets shared with him all the scriptures about who he was can you does your heart burn within you the way it did to them and 
And then see him with the disciples as Jesus led them out as far as Bethany. And he lifts up his hands to bless them. And he, he ascends to the Father. To the right hand of Father, see him reigning on the throne, ever living to make intercession for us. If you've never seen him, fall down on your face. Worship him. See him, God incarnate, who came to purchase salvation, to redeem a people, to bear the wrath of God upon his own body. Cry out, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. I'm undone. If you ignore this sign, if you ignore Him, there is no hope. None. May none of us leave here having heard the message of Christ with our blood upon our own heads. Don't be as a member of this wicked and adulterous generation that Christ was speaking to here. Who one day the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment and condemn their unbelief. We are given every sign right here. This book from beginning to end is a revelation of who Jesus Christ is. It starts with Christ, it ends with Christ. See Him. As our text says, there's something greater than Jonah here. Something greater. Yeah. May the Lord bless His Word. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your Word. We thank You for the Spirit revealing it to us. We thank You for the Spirit's work in drawing us to You, revealing salvation, revealing Christ to us, Lord. Pray, Lord, that we would honor You, glorify You, share of You. Lord, may we give a message of hope to a lost and dying world. Lord, we live in a, in a day of wicked and adulterous people, Lord. We thank You for the message of hope the message of reconciliation that you've given to us. And Lord, make us faithful ambassadors to share that. In your name we pray. Amen.